What would you do if someone offered you a big break, but the catch was you had to have yourself committed to an insane asylum? We'll discuss that today on Footnoting History. Hello and welcome to Footnoting History. Today's installment is part one of a two-part series on care for those with mental illnesses at the end of the 19th and 20th centuries. In the 1890s, Nellie Bly had herself committed to an asylum in New York City to get the dirt on what it was really like behind those closed doors. To give us a little context, I thought we'd go back about 1,000 years, give or take a few hundred, to trace the development of how people with mental illnesses were viewed and cared for in society over time. Since at least the Middle Ages in both the East and the West, questions have existed about what to do with those suffering from mental illness. Though those with mental illnesses went by many names back then, such as lunatics, madmen, madwomen, it was hard to decide where they belonged. Eventually, starting in the 9th century in Cairo and by at least the 13th century in France, hospitals began to open a few beds to those men or women, many of whom were believed to be possessed by the devil. By the 18th century in Europe, madness, as it was termed, was seen as a problem to be taken care of by the afflicted's family or parish. And if you're stopping here to remember Poor Mad Bertha and Jane Eyre, published in 1847, you aren't too far off. That's exactly what was going on. She was kept at home, correct? Or, you know, locked up in a tower room which she could escape from and set fire to massive houses, same difference. Heck, even in the 20th century, we have Boo Radley and To Kill a Mockingbird. His parents kept him at home and that turned out really well for them as well. Although it worked out for Scout, spoiler alert. But not everyone could afford to keep the afflicted at home. That's, that's the purview of those with, with money, basically. While a few institutions were open to house the violently insane, or those from impoverished circumstances, the majority of the insane still had nowhere to go. Eventually, private asylums began to be open, but they were little better than the public ones, which were often workhouses. And if you know anything about your 19th century workhouses, you know you pretty much went there to die. Understanding of mental illnesses did take a step forward in this period, as King George III of England not only fell into periods of madness, excellent movie by the way, The Madness of King George, but then came out of them. Instead of blaming demons, some began to feel that the insane could and should be rehabilitated. Starting in the 1850s and 60s, lunatic asylums began to pop up in the United States. As more asylums were created, more and more patients appeared until in 1904 there were 150,000 patients in mental institutions in the United States alone, or approximately 0.2% of the entire population. It was in this period and situation that Nellie Bly was born. Born in Pennsylvania in 1864 as Elizabeth Jane Cochran, Nellie Bly was always her own person. For example, she was nicknamed Pinky because she often wore that color. And before you think that Nellie was just foreshadowing the princess trend, remember that prior to World War II in America, blue was for girls, pink was for boys. Nellie's choice of color palette was, even if unintentionally, going to make her stand out. After her father died, her mother moved the family to Pittsburgh when Nellie was around 16. The young girl read an article entitled, What Good Are Girls For? in the Pittsburgh Dispatch, with the gist of the article being that girls were good for nothing. And angered, Nellie wrote back an anonymous letter that so impressed the editor that he asked her to identify herself and 
gave her a job under the byline Nellie Bly, which was a popular song of the day. As might be expected from her fashion choices, Nellie chose not to talk about society or clothes, but rather the plight of working women. As her editors tried to move her to the more femininely acceptable, at least in the 19th century, discussions of the latest balls and the wealthy American society, Nellie declared herself a foreign correspondent, and as you do when you are a foreign correspondent, left for Mexico, where she criticized the Mexican government and was threatened with arrest by the Mexican authorities. She then came home and wrote an expose criticizing the Mexican government some more. But Nellie was over Pittsburgh. She had gone as far as she could go there, she felt. What she wanted to be was a journalist in New York City. Unfortunately for her, she had difficulty finding a job, and within four months she was penniless. Spurred by her desperation, she talked her way into the offices of a newspaper called the New York World. Owned by Joseph Pulitzer and considered one of his yellow papers, so-called because they were printed on yellow paper, let that one sink in, and they were considered the equivalent of today's tabloids. However, under Pulitzer's guidance, the newspaper reached over one million people. So, I mean, just slightly bigger than this podcast. And Nellie was lucky enough to be offered a job. What was it? An undercover assignment at a New York institution for the insane known as Blackwell's Island. And we probably need really ominous music every time I say that. Blackwell's Island. The Blackwell Island Asylum... Wow, that is a tongue twister, the Blackwell Island Asylum, was established in 1834, and by the 1840s, illustrious visitors like Charles Dickens were already not impressed. By the 1880s, the women's portion of the asylum was plagued by rumors of abuse and neglect. It was to this madhouse, as it was known, that Pulitzer wanted Nellie Bly to go. Nellie took the charge seriously and went about having herself committed. She checked into a boarding house, told the other boarders that she feared them, refused to go to bed, and within one day, one day, people, her fellow boarders called the police to report her. Yes. Feigning amnesia, Bly was examined by several doctors, all of whom, after this one-day episode, declared her insane, and she went was sent without further delay to Blackwell's Island. According to Bly, once inside the institution, she immediately dropped all pretenses and began to act as her regular self. So this is like less than two days, people, which only served to reinforce her insanity in the minds of her quote-unquote caretakers. Obviously, she must be insane if she was acting so sane. So what is it like inside? All right, the food she found was mostly inedible, the water undrinkable, rats everywhere, inmates were left to sit on benches for hours. Nellie had difficulty sleeping at night, and although left in a room which was her own personal room, her lack of sleep bothered the night nurses who complained to the doctor. Yes, because even though she stayed quiet in her own room, the fact that she didn't sleep, that was a bother. So the solution? Drug her. They weren't allowed to move or talk, and if they did, they were at best told to shut up and at worst, beaten. Quote, Nearly all night long, I listened to a woman cry about the cold and beg for God to let her die. End quote. The next day, Nellie saw the woman she heard cry out in the night and witnessed this scene. Quote, she appeared easily 70 years old and she was blind. Although the halls were freezing cold, the old woman had no more clothing on than the rest of us, which I have described. When she was brought into the sitting room and placed on the hard bench, she cried, Oh, what, what are you doing with me? I'm so cold, so cold. Why can't I stay in bed or have a shawl? And then she would get up and endeavor to find her way to leave the room. Sometimes the attendants would jerk her back to the bench, and again they would let her walk and heartlessly laugh when she bumped against the table or the edge of the benches. 
At one time, she said the heavy shoes which Charity provided hurt her feet, and she took them off. The nurse made two patients put them on her again, and when she did it several times and fought against having them on, I counted seven people at her at once trying to put the shoes on. The old woman then tried to lie down on the bench, but they pulled her up again. End quote. Inmates who complained were repeatedly told to be thankful for the charity they were receiving as they didn't deserve it. Soon, Nellie began to believe that she was locked up with many women who were actually sane, but driven insane by the conditions and treatment. Her conclusions were not new. In the years leading up to the Civil War, for example, Elizabeth Packard was sent packing. Couldn't resist that one. Elizabeth Packard sent packing. Okay, sorry. Back to the seriousness. Elizabeth Packard was sent packing to an asylum by her minister husband for disagreeing with his theology. This defiance led her to being institutionalized for three years because she disagreed with her husband's theology. After the three years, she was placed under home care, and finally, a trial led to her being declared sane. Bly did not have as long to wait to get out as she had pretty powerful connections. Remember, it's Pulitzer who told her to get in. So he's going to come and get her out. After 10 days, the world, the paper that had sent her there, stepped in and got Bly released. After her time at Blackwell Island, Bly continued as a stunt journalist for time, most famously traveling around the world in less than 80 days. Eventually, she married an industrialist and spent the rest of her life dividing her time between business, suffrage, and orphans. She died at 57 from pneumonia, and her story passed into history. But what, if anything, came about from her time in an institution? After her stay, if you will, she published the aptly named book, Ten Days in a Madhouse. Bly ended up serving on a grand jury to not only investigate Blackwell Island, but also how easy it was to be declared insane. Part of the findings were intended to make it harder for the sane to be sent so easily to institutions. But did it work? We'll discuss that next week in part two of our discussion on institutions for the mentally ill when we cover the Rosenhan experiment. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week.